We are continuing this morning in our study of the early church, the growth of the early church in the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 16. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, I believe you'll find that on page 1177, Acts 16. While you're turning there, you'll remember from last week we looked at uh, Paul and the, the company of the missionaries there. We looked at their decision-making process as they tried to figure out where to go on the second missionary journey. After they had gone, to, gone back to visit all of those churches that they planted on the first journey, now what? Where do we go next? Where do we take the gospel into a new place? After what must have felt like a bunch of false starts and floundering all over the western half of modern Turkey, the Lord finally, finally called them to travel across the Aegean into the northern portion of Greece, what, is, what was called then Macedonia. Now that the decision has been made, this morning we're going to follow them and we're going to see what happened once they did that uh, journey, made that journey to Macedonia. Now, as always, as we, when we open God's Word together, uh, we need the Spirit to be with us and among us, to be teaching us from His Word and restraining our sin. So if you're able, would you please stand with me now as I pray for that and then remain standing as I read from Acts 16. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your Word, Your truth that You have spoken into our lives and into the world. Father, we pray that you would be present among us by your Spirit, that you would give us your grace, uh, that you would open our eyes to see your truth, that you would soften our hearts to understand, to believe, and to apply your truth faithfully. By your grace, may you strengthen, edify us through this, your word, so that your name would be praised in all things. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm reading from Acts chapter 16. I'll start in verse 11. This is God's word. As we were, excuse me, that's the wrong paragraph. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day on to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed that there was a place of prayer We sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thuatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, she and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disrupting our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them in prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. 
And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembled with, trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them at the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up to his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. When it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, Let those men go. The jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and they apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison, and they visited Lydia. When they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. This changes everything. From new cars to cell phones to most recently apparently a veggie burger. We hear this refrain regularly in advertising, this changes everything. This revolutionary new idea or product is so consequential that you won't be able to understand the world in the same way that you always have before. You must change. And the advertisers want us to believe that this widget they're selling, whatever it is, is truly so important that you cannot miss it. To be fair to them, every now and again, even in our lifetimes, a product does come along that, in fact, completely changes the way the world fits together. It is inescapable that our lives are different now, fundamentally different than they were in 2006 before the introduction of the first modern smartphone, the iPhone. It is a live debate whether we're different for the better or different for the worse, but that's, we are unavoidably different, inescapably, that is true. But here's the thing, advertisers, politicians, hype men make this type of claim far more often than is actually the case. Usually, it's little more than a poetic way to say, come buy my widget, it's kind of sort of relatively cool. Or maybe, come buy my widget even though it's a total piece of junk that will break in a week. But come buy it anyway. And because that's what it means, and we know that's what it means, we become jaded and cynical. We think that such claims not only are not true, but that they could never be true. That nothing changes under the sun. What has been is what will be, period. That the way it was is the way it is, is the way it will always be. As long as we're talking about, you know, commercialism and advertising and so on and so forth, that's not entirely a bad attitude to have, right? As much as it is, it is necessary armor in the marketplace against the hype machine, which constantly assaults us with all of the stuff that we have to have right now. The problem is that that attitude seeps into everything else 
to. And it immunizes us against the idea that there might actually be true things, revolutionary ideas and events that quite literally change everything, that leave us incapable of continuing as we always have before. Now, obviously, the clearest example of that is the gospel itself. Even if nothing else in the history of the world qualifies, the gospel does actually change everything. It is common in our day to hear people say things along the lines of, well, you know, that's, that's fine for you, and I'm glad that you believe that, but it, it's just not true for me. Implying, at least, that the gospel is just one more option in a spherical smorgasbord none of which, none of those options of which are essential or fundamentally any different from each other. Do you want spam and eggs or do you want eggs and spam? Really not that different, guys. But C.S. Lewis once described the gospel as an idea or event that causes a person's life to fork, an inflection point that every person who encounters the gospel is changed irrevocably. Some obviously embrace it and find new life. Others reject it and find death afresh. The gospel is such that when it is proclaimed faithfully, no one can ignore it and continue on as before. They must be changed in some way. Now, to be clear, before you start throwing things at me, sometimes, probably more often than not in our day, that change is under the surface. It is invisible often to everyone else, But at the end of the day, every person who truly encounters the gospel must be changed by it because the Holy Spirit is at work in and through it in our hearts through the presentation of the gospel message. We must be changed by that truth. In our passage this morning, Luke gives us three vignettes showing how the gospel presentation in Philippi provokes very different reactions in different people. Whether opposition leading to persecution or humility leading to hospitality and and generosity, no one comes away unchanged. All are provoked to respond one way or the other. As I said, you'll remember from last week, uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy and the rest of the crew had traveled by foot across Turkey, joined up in the city of Troas uh, on the northwestern coast by Luke himself, And while they were in Troas, the Lord directed them to go across to Macedonia, the northern portion of what is now Greece. So they took ship, they crossed the Aegean, stopping in the rocky island of Samothrace before proceeding on to the port city of Neapolis, or creatively named Newtown. That's what it means. Once ashore, they travel about, I don't know, 10 miles or so inland to Philippi, which Luke tells us is a Roman colony and a leading city in the district, which is probably why they went there rather than just staying on the coast at Neapolis. Now, before we go any further, we need a little bit of background on this idea of a Roman colony so that we can understand what that means, because it has implications for why this passage, why these events play out the way they do. Uh, We can get a little confused by this because our mental picture of a colony is shaped by European colonialism and British colonialism in particular. They're the same zip code, sort of, but they're not exactly the same thing and we can get tripped up by it. In our minds, a colony is a territory outside of the main homeland, but which is claimed by the main homeland, settled by people from the homeland. As I say, there's some points of connection, but we tend to get a little confused because Philippi is in the Roman Empire. What do you mean it's a colony? It's part of the empire. I don't understand. 
Uh, we tend to read our modern understanding of nation states back onto the empire, the Roman Empire. Massive, certainly, but it's a single political unit with a shared identity. All of the Roman Empire is one thing. It's kind of the way we think of it. But if we're going to draw a modern illusion, it's probably better to think of it akin to the British Empire of the late 1800s. One homeland, Britain, but then a whole bunch of second or third class territories that are under the control of that primary homeland. Someone born in Mumbai in India would have been a subject of the British crown, but not a citizen of Britain. At the same time, someone born that same day in the city of London would be both a subject of the crown and a citizen and would have some additional rights and privileges that were not available to the one born in Mumbai. Now, the analogy is not exactly perfect, but the Roman Empire worked somewhat similarly took the idea a little bit further. Rome, the homeland, the, the region right around the city there, founded other cities throughout the territories that it controlled, throughout what we call the Roman Empire, usually which it populated with retired soldiers, Roman soldiers and their families. And those cities held the same legal standing as if they were suburbs of Rome itself. So if you were born in Philippi, it was exactly the same legally as if you'd been born in the city of Rome. You had all the same rights and privileges. For our passage, this means that Philippi, as a Roman colony, was a staunchly Roman, highly patriotic, generally far more concerned with legal and sociocultural niceties than a non-Roman colony would have been. And we'll see how that kind of plays out in the reactions of the people. But in, before we get there, in the first vignette, Paul and company arrive in town. As was their practice, they immediately on the Sabbath went to where the Jews gathered to worship God. This is Paul's consistent pattern. Preach the gospel first in the synagogue to those who are God's people, who are part of the community of the covenant, who know the Lord at least somewhat. And only after that, go to the Gentiles, typically after the synagogue has rejected the gospel. But there is no synagogue in Philippi. Under the established rules of the synagogue system, you had to have 10 Jewish men resident in a city to establish a synagogue. And it seems like there weren't enough in Philippi, in this Roman enclave. So the Jews and the proselytes gathered, mostly women, gathered to meet a bit outside the city by the river for prayer and encouragement on the Sabbath. So Paul and company go out to join them there, where they are, and they preach the gospel. Luke doesn't tell us how many successive weeks this happened, uh, this vignette spans. Maybe it was all happening in the first visit that they made. Maybe it was over several weeks or even several months. We don't know. But however long it was, fairly quickly, God opens the heart of one woman in particular who is both a wealthy merchant, a God-fearer, that is one who worships and obeys the God of Israel, but who hadn't taken the full and final steps of becoming a Jew, uh, who Luke names Lydia. As a seller of purple, she would have sold purple dye, purple cloth, and these dyes were difficult, time-consuming, and therefore expensive to produce, uh, and therefore expensive to purchase as well. This is why, as an aside, this is why purple is considered the imperial color because it was believed kind of hyperbolically that only the emperor could afford to buy it. And so that was the kind of the, the, the symbol of, of his power and wealth. Uh, it wasn't quite that bad in reality, but it was very expensive. And she was successful in this build, business because when she comes to faith, she had the ability to have Paul and company come and stay with her without damaging either her finances, she could clearly afford to host them, or her reputation. They were obviously not in a small house sharing a single room. We'll come back to Lydia in a minute. 
while the missionaries were going out to the place of meeting by the river, they were accosted by a slave girl. Luke tells us this happens, verse 18, for many days. He doesn't tell us whether this started the first day they were in town or sometime later, but clearly it was a regular, consistent thing. Verse 16, Luke tells us she was a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. His implication here, the, the language that he uses, implies that this is the same type of spirit that, was, that empowered the oracle at Delphi, which you probably heard of. It was so famous for telling the future. That's the same kind of thing. Where Lydia was an independent, wealthy merchant, this slave girl was the exact opposite end of the spectrum. She was wholly owned. Owned physically by her slave owners, right? But also owned spiritually by these demonic forces. For whatever reason, the spirit that possessed her followed the missionaries around, shouting that, verse 17, These men are servants, or slaves, same word, servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. We read that and we're like, okay, that's great, Paul. Why are you getting mad? I don't understand. To our ears, this sounds like a good thing. This demonic spirit is through the slave girl speaking literal truth. They are servants of the Most High God. The one true God, the God of Israel, who reigns over all things, they are proclaiming the way of salvation. What a phenomenal introduction. Why is Paul troubled enough by this, annoyed enough by this true statement that he turns around finally and casts the demon out? What's going on here? Here's the thing. While the statement was technically true, it was just vague enough that in that Roman colony, in the middle of the Greco-Roman world, what people heard would have been very different than what we're hearing in that. It would not have been, it would not have just been, huh, that's weird, I don't understand why she's saying that, but rather it would have been actively misunderstood to any, by any who heard. The Old Testament, as kind of our background, the Old Testament uses Most High God to refer to Yahweh, and as such, it was literally true of Jesus. But in the Greco-Roman world, at least outside of Palestine, that phrase, Most High God, referred to the highest of the Greco-Roman gods, Zeus or Jupiter, depending on where you were. In this Roman colony, they would not have heard these men are sent by Yahweh, but they would have heard these men are sent by Zeus. Likewise, Paul was certainly proclaiming the way of salvation, But that word salvation, the most common use of the term in that day, didn't refer to any sort of spiritual reality, but salvation from financial or physical distress, danger. This demonic spirit of divination, while speaking literal truth, was using it to divert the minds of those who heard it away from that truth of Christ. This tactic is absolutely still used by the adversary today. It is absolutely still used today. Just as one example, people today, past preachers, I won't say pastors, but preachers will tell you that Jesus wants you to be happy and healthy and wants to provide you with great riches, that he lived and he died to secure those blessings for you. And that's not wrong exactly, but Jesus wants your spiritual health, your spiritual joy, and he wants you to store up treasures in heaven. To take that truth and say it in such a way that implies or, or, or even says outright that, that what the benefit there is is for my bank account, my health here in this life. That's rank heresy. 
No matter how true the words might be considered on their own, it is rank heresy to use them to apply such a false thing. The adversary is a past master at taking the truth and twisting it into a pretzel to convince people that it means the exact opposite of what it says. The forces of evil responded to the gospel proclamation by opposing it and undermining it immediately. But he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Paul casts out the demon, which is all to the good. Luke doesn't give us any further information about this slave girl, uh, but the traditional account handed down from the earliest church said that she came to faith that day and joined with the believers from then forward. Again, that's not, we don't have that in Scripture. We don't know scripturally what happened to her, but that's been the, the traditional account of the church, that that's what, what her, the result for her was. So obviously she comes out pretty well. However, her owners, not so happy. They'd been getting rich probably for years off of her spirit of divination, and now that spirit is gone, and their financial and business prospects were in ruins. And they decide that this simply won't do. They want to punish the missionaries, but they're smart about it. They know that if they simply complain that they took a financial hit from what they did, well, that's just part of the risk you run when you have a business. I mean, you know, suck it up, kid. The city's not going to care all that much. So instead, they stir up nationalistic fervor by accusing the missionaries of advocating customs that are, verse 21, not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. And this stirs up the mob. The missionaries get beaten and ultimately thrown in the most secure portion of the jail, and the girl's owners must have assumed that they would be killed or at least exiled pretty quickly. Then that night, the Lord causes an earthquake, which was not a particularly common occurrence in that area, but not unheard of either. An earthquake that breaks open all the locks, opening the doors and releasing all of the chains that the missionaries were bound by, which is a pretty miraculous earthquake. And then the jailer wakes up and realizes that everything's unlocked, all the doors are open, all the chains are off, and he's going to kill himself. He intends to kill himself out of shame at having failed of his charge, and Paul calls out and stops him before he can. The guard responds and and asks, verse 30, what must I do to be saved? Now, to be clear, he's probably asking, how do I get out of this mess? It's going to reflect really poorly on me that all the locks and all of the everything got busted open. This is going to look bad for me. I'm going to be ashamed in, in front of, you know, the whole city, and it's going to be bad. Because remember, salvation in this culture wasn't used of spiritual things apart from the preaching of the gospel itself. But Paul takes the straight line. And he gives the man a much deeper answer than he probably realized he was asking for. When you're talking to non-believers in your ordinary life, the Lord will put these conversations in front of you. If you're paying attention, you need to be looking for these straight lines, as it were. The opportunity to tell dying people the hope that is in you. Some will ignore you or even openly reject you, but in God's grace and timing, some will believe as this man does because God will move in their hearts. The Holy Spirit, by His grace, puts people in a position where they ask, what must I do to be saved, even if they don't understand the question they're asking? If we're on on the lookout for those moments when we can proclaim truth in a way that touches this person where they are, the Lord will use it. This man believes and he responds by washing their wounds and bringing them to his own house where they teach him and teach his family and the whole household is baptized just as Lydia's whole household had been baptized. 
Now, let me take a minute, just as a brief aside. This passage includes two of the household baptisms in the New Testament. Lots of people point to these as evidence for their own positions on baptism, whatever that position is. But ultimately, all of these arguments rest on the silence of the text. Some will claim that all in the household believed, that none of them were under a certain age, whatever that age is, and so their individual belief was what caused them to be baptized. But that strong a statement is simply not supportable by the text or the culture of the day. It is just barely possible that that is what happened. But it's not guaranteed, and it's really not even the most likely explanation. In the text, it is certain that the head of the household, Lydia, the jailer, Cornelius, whoever, it is certain that the head of the household believed. It is certain in the text that the whole household was baptized. But Luke doesn't specify anything more about the household than its existence, and he doesn't say anything about the faith or lack thereof by the other members of the household, which would ordinarily, though not automatically, the household would have ordinarily included probably slaves and servants and almost certainly children. Now, I think the thrust of the text, the culture in which it's situated, incline us to see that the baptisms of the whole households here come about because of the head of the household's belief. That these are covenant baptisms, which at least some of the blessings of the covenant are given to the whole household, the members, the entire members of the household, because of the faith of the head of the household. This is the way the covenant of grace works, worked in the Old Testament, and we expect to see the Lord working in the same ways in the New Testament, in the church age, that he did in the Old Testament, unless he specifically tells us he's doing things differently. We expect to see things to continue the same. I believe, that, I believe that firmly that this is a covenant baptism. That's the position of this church. But as you know, if you've talked to me at all about this, you don't have to agree with me to be a member here. You, don't have, you especially don't have to agree to me to be a, with me to be a Christian. Now, obviously that's a big topic. We don't have time to cover the whole thing right now. But if you'd like to talk more, come grab me afterwards. Let's set up a time to sit down and talk about baptism. And I'd love to, and we'll talk. Uh, anyway, back to the text. We'll see, we see in this section that the gospel always, always provokes a response from the demon, from the owners of the slave girl, from the angry mob of retired Roman soldiers. The response provoked went beyond simple disbelief to active opposition and even persecution. From the possessed slave girl, from the upstanding government worker, the jailer, from the wealthy merchant who all believed, the gospel provoked a response that went beyond simple belief, drove them to generosity with their money and their time and their resources, giving hospitality as they were able. Lydia invited them to stay in her home, covered the cost, financial and social, and according to tradition, she was, her house is where the church in Philippi met. That was the, the church building, as it were. The jailer became a healer and then risked being killed for helping prisoners escape when he brought them to his own home and fed them. The gospel truly does change everything. Our lives cannot remain the same when we encounter the truth of Jesus Christ. We must either begin to be hardened as Pharaoh was, refusing to believe, growing ever more cynical, more resistant, more actively opposed to Christ and all his works, or we must begin to be changed to be more like Christ, overflowing with acts of love, generosity, and hospitality, and proclamation of the same gospel that has changed and is changing us.
Well, you know that we are not saved because of our response. It is not our response that earns us salvation. The gospel rightly proclaimed changes everyone who hears it and if we have believed truly, it will necessarily result in a response. But of course, that response doesn't save us. For some, it is the stench of death. For others, it is the very breath of life. The one thing that it can never be, the one thing the gospel message can never be is, eh, ho-hum, no big deal, life as usual, just everything kind of goes on as it was, no big deal. The gospel can never provoke apathy. It can never drive a person to decide that my life is pretty good as it is, but you know, maybe just add a little dollop of God's grace on top will be the extra seasoning that I need to draw everything together and make it perfect. That'll be great. I've got it pretty much, you know, I got 99 yards. I just need that last yard to get over the goal line. And that's what grace will provide. That is a lie of the evil one. The evil one who wants you to see the gospel as an add-on to your already mostly perfect life. You've got it pretty good. Just add a little gospel to make it better. Y'all, we're all tempted this way. We are all tempted to see our lives as we're pretty much, we've got it together. We are the rich men who have trouble getting through the eye of the needle. Wilbur Rees, who was a poet in the early 1900s, wrote of this inclination in all of us. He said in in one of his poems, he said, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough, just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or pick meats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. This is our temptation. Now, we never put it that bluntly, right? But that's our temptation. I I just want a little bit of you, Lord, just, just enough to make me feel better. But it's a lie. If you are content, if you are comfortable where you are spiritually, that should sound warning buzzers and flashing lights and sirens throughout your mind and heart. Because those things, comfort, satisfaction with where we are, those things are signs of death, cancer. The gospel always changes us. It always drives us to pursue Christ with everything in us. We don't do that perfectly in this life, but it drives us to pursue Him to want Him, to struggle toward Him. It is, as Lewis said, a fork in the road, a fork with a sheer cliff in front of us. We can't keep going straight. We have to turn either toward Christ or away from Christ. There's no third option. As we choose and turn, one way or the other, our lives will certainly reflect that change. Turn to Christ with your inability and with your supposed ability. With your failures as with your small successes, turn to Christ with everything you are and be transformed by His grace. He is good and He is at work in you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your grace and Your mercy. We thank You that You are at work in us by Your Spirit. We pray that You would transform us. Give us eyes to see clearly. Give us hearts in humble submission to You 
struggling toward holiness, struggling toward what You have gifted us with Yourself. Make Your name great in us, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.